0: Beloved God gives us biblical examples of prayers in Scripture. The Apostle Paul does this. He does this in Philippians, Colossians, does it twice in Ephesians. And in the second prayer in Ephesians, in Ephesians chapter 3, I'm going to read it beginning in verse 14. Uh, by way of introduction, opening for our message this morning. This is what the Apostle Paul says. This is what God says to the Apostle Paul on behalf of the Ephesian believers and a great model and lesson for us. He says, Ephesians 3 and verse 14, For this reason I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth derives its name, that he would grant you according to the riches of his glory, to be strengthened with power, through his spirit in the inner man, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, and that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ, which surpasses knowledge, so that you may be filled up to all the fullness of God. Beloved, I remember it was in a a seminary class. I took a couple seminary classes up in Seattle before I went down to a real seminary in Southern California. And one of the classes, that was very rich. It was a systematic theology class taught by J.I. Packer. And it was in that class where this one phrase in this prayer really grabbed me in a way that I hadn't contemplated so much before, where he says that you may be able to comprehend with all the saints. I would think any... Christian would understand that that's not just merely talking about the fact that we agree here in a local church on the color of the carpet. It's much deeper and broader than that. That we would agree on the great doctrines of grace and salvation with all the saints in every land, tongue, tribe, and nation. And what really grabbed me back in that seminary class was not just the ones alive now, but all the saints from time past. And I thought of that this morning as we are continuing our expeditional journey through the book of Hebrews. In Hebrews chapter 11, where God gives us such amazing examples, men and women of old, godly men and women. And as we read even the outline God gives us, as he gives us example after example, in Hebrews chapter 11, we know that these were men and women of faith. And at the same time, we understand they were men and women of action. They demonstrate faith that works. Abel, sacrificed by faith. Enoch was pleasing to God by faith. Noah, who is the third example in the subject of our text this morning, built the ark by faith. Abraham obeyed, left his homeland, lived as an alien in a land, and offered up his son by faith. Sarah conceived by faith. Jacob blessed. Isaac blessed. Joseph gave orders concerning the exodus by faith, even though the exodus was still some four centuries off in the future. Moses left Egypt, kept the Passover, and endured by faith. And Rahab welcomed the spies by faith. Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, David, and Samuel, and other unnamed men and unnamed women. Look at verse 33. This is what they did. These are their actions that by God's grace and mercy that they accomplished by faith. Verse 33, they... Conquered kingdoms, performed acts of righteousness, obtained promises, shut the mouths of lions, quenched the power of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, from weaknesses were made strong, became mighty in war, put foreign armies to flight. Women received back their dead by resurrection. Others were tortured, not accepting their release, in order that they might obtain a better resurrection." And others experienced mockings and scourgings, yes, also chains and imprisonment. They were stoned. They were sawn in two. They were tempted. They were put to death with the sword. They went about in sheepskins and goatskins, being destitute, afflicted, and ill-treated. Men of whom the world was not worthy, wandering in deserts and mountains and caves and holes in the ground. Beloved, This is what they did by faith. This is faith in action. This is a snapshot, or maybe we should say a video, of true saving faith that is not merely a professed faith, but a true possessed faith. Beloved, hear the word of God now as I read our passage this morning, which is just verse 7. This is the word of God where we see by faith Noah being warned by God about things not yet seen, in reverence prepared an ark for the salvation of his household, by which he condemned the world and became an heir of the righteousness, which is according to faith. Beloved, this is the word of God that has been read in your hearing. Please attend to it as such. So right here at the beginning, we see this equation by faith. By faith, by faith, by faith, again and again in the chapter. This chapter is beautiful poetry. And at the same time, this repetition of by faith confirms and affirms and emphasizes that these men and women of old were saved by faith. They lived by faith. They believed the word of God. They agreed with it. And by God's grace and mercy, they trusted and they were faithful to it. And as good students of the word, we want to remind ourselves and think of the context of the original. Jewish Christian audience to whom the author was writing and they understood this precious group of believers of Jewish believers in the first century church understood that they were saved by faith alone in Christ alone on this side of the cross but surely in their mind they were asking well what about all the patriarchs of old what about the matriarchs of the belief system that God has entrusted to his people And what the author says is he says, beloved folks, this is nothing new. And to be sure, on this side of the cross, on this side of the God-man Jesus Christ, who was the fulfillment of the prophecies all the way back even to God's word of hope to Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden, In Genesis 3.15, when he was pronouncing his judgment upon the serpent and Satan, on this side of the fulfillment of all these in Christ Jesus, we have more revelation, we have greater light. But the way of salvation, the way by which a sinful man or woman can be made right with God is the same. This is nothing new. Salvation by faith alone is nothing new. And what we have here in verse 7, is the third of the antediluvian, the pre-flood superstars. We've already seen Abel and Enoch. And Abel, we know, had a worshiping faith. Enoch had a walking faith. And what we see here in the case of Noah is he had a working faith. Now, Abel, Enoch, and Noah, and you and me, every one of us that are Trusting in Jesus Christ as our savior, we have a worshiping, walking, and working faith. But what God does here is he accents the different aspects in each of these different men. And so Noah is the example par excellence of a working faith. Abel, when we think of him, when we think of the first example, there's a contrast. Abel stands in stark relief and stark contrast with his brother Cain. Enoch stands in contrast with the other genealogy, the names from Adam to Noah in Genesis chapter 5, all of whom were saved men. But Enoch stands out in stark contrast from those men because he escaped death. Noah stands out in stark relief and contrast with the entire world of his time. And what God does is, with these first three examples, he takes us back to Genesis chapter 4, Abel, Genesis chapter 5, Enoch, and then Genesis chapter 6, Noah. Because, beloved, your story of redemption, our story of redemption begins with creation. And then like... Abel and Enoch and the sparse treatment that we have of them in Genesis 4 and 5. Noah gets four chapters beginning in Genesis chapter 6. Four out of the 11 seminal foundational chapters of Genesis 1 through 11 are devoted to Noah. And beloved, what we will see the author of Hebrews in this little expositional verse on the life of Noah is we see four characteristics of saving faith modeled in the case of Noah revelation reverence rebuke and reward and some of you may be saying well that sounds kind of familiar pastor Aren't, are you kind of using the same outline that you did you know before oh beloved this isn't like a lazy man's out this is the repetition of the same pattern again different nuances different emphases with the different examples but it's the same faith in the word of God and namely what faith in action looks like faith that works so let's look at the first characteristic of saving faith in the life of Noah namely revelation the word of God simply put Noah believed that what God promised, God will produce. God spoke and Noah obeyed because Noah believed. He believed the word of God. And beloved, understand this. Dear friend, understand this. Faith always finds its source and its strength in the revelation of God, in the word of God. The heroes, all of the heroes and heroines of Hebrew 11 were men and women of action where God spoke, they obeyed because they believed. And that's what we see here in Noah. Look again at verse seven. By faith, Noah being warned by God about things not yet seen. Uh, The word Translated there as warned is used almost exclusively in the New Testament. There's only one example in Acts that would be outside of this. All other examples of this word that's translated being warned by God here are cases of divine revelation, usually divine warning. In fact, we saw this already here in Hebrews verse 8, or excuse me, chapter 8, verse 5, where we read, just as Moses was warned by God when he was about to erect the tabernacle, uh, both here in Hebrews eleven seven, and in the case of Moses chapter eight verse five, you see the little words "by God" are in italics. They weren't part of the original language, but clearly God is the one that communicated the warning. God is the one that gave the revelation to Noah and gave the revelation to Moses back in chapter eight. Let's turn. To Genesis chapter 6, the story of Noah, uh, unlike Enoch, and perhaps in some ways unlike different aspects of Abel, is perhaps not as well known to many as the story of Noah. I would say most human beings, at least in the western world, are somewhat familiar with the story of Noah, although there's much misperception, misunderstanding. And the situation is, the reason why the author uses this word that Noah was warned is because of the radical situation, the radical corruption and sin that was prevalent around the earth. Uh, God created Adam and Eve perfect in the Garden of Eden. The fall took place. And then from that point forward, even when we looked last week in the case of Enoch, who was in Genesis chapter 5, we know from the book of Jude, that little letter of Jude, that in Jude's commentary on Enoch, who we read of in Genesis chapter 5, that even at that time, the situation was dark. There was tremendous sin. Enoch was, as Whitfield says, a preacher of righteousness, or excuse me, he was a flaming preacher. Noah is a preacher of righteousness. Enoch was a flaming preacher, and he was a flaming preacher to a huge number the majority of people that were disobedient to god so by the time we get to genesis chapter 6 the world is in a horrible state this is what god says in verse 1 of genesis 6 now came about when men began to multiply in the face of the land that daughters were born to them that the sons of god saw that the daughters of men were beautiful and they took wives for themselves whomever they chose Then the Lord said, My spirit shall not strive with man forever, because he also is flesh. Nevertheless, his day shall be 120 years. What God is saying is, My spirit shall not strive with man. God is saying that he's going to remove the restraining measure of the spirit. And when the spirit is removed, when the spirit leaves, sin and chaos abounds and sin and chaos explodes. And then in verse 5, the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great on the earth, and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. Great, every, only, continually. This is completely evil and always evil. Total wickedness saturated and polluted the world at that time. We If you were here last week, we thought of the idea that we were told back in Genesis 5 that Enoch walked with God for 300 years. And just to try to imagine sanctification on this side of eternity, the kind of sanctification of growing in the grace and knowledge of God, what that would look like of 300 years walking with God. On the other side of the equation, what we have here coming into Genesis chapter 6 is hundreds and hundreds and hundreds. Men and women lived over 900 years in the pre-flood world. So hundreds of years of giving in to temptation, hundreds and hundreds of years of hardening, hundreds and hundreds of years of sin and depravity. So what we have is a catastrophic corruption which requires in God's sovereign purpose a catastrophic remedy. The severity of the sin will be met by the severity of God's righteous judgment. That is what sets the stage for the flood and the global destruction that it was to come. And that was what God warned Noah about. And you'll see in verses 6 and 7, also of Genesis 6, that the Lord was sorry that he made man on the earth, and he was grieved in his heart. Uh, pause there for a second. Many times, people, I've heard people say, well, that's just, a, that's just kind of using human language to help us understand uh, God. That's the, people will even say that's an anthropomorphism, which is, isn't even a correct usage of the word because anthropomorphism has to do with shape, not it'd be anthropopathism, but that's a different point. What we're saying here, beloved, and what I'm saying here is God is personal. God has emotion. God has made us in his own image. So God can fill sorrow. God can grieve in his heart, of course, in a perfectly sinless, perfectly holy, perfectly righteous fashion. And this godly, perfect, holy, righteous sorrow and grief that God has is part of his even sovereign plan. He's not surprised by anything. There's not a renegade molecule in the entire universe. Whatsoever may come to pass was foreordained by God, even the radical extent of the pollution and corruption that was the situation here. And the total depravity is met with total destruction. Uh, even the word earth, uh, the Hebrew word Eretz uh, appear, which is translated as earth or land, Eretz, earth, land, appears 37 times in Genesis chapter 6 through 8. The Hebrew word kol, which is translated all or every, appears 49 times in Genesis 6 through 8. The point is this complete total corruption was around the entire earth and the flood and the deluge and the direction was a global event where basically God wiped things clean down to the very foundation of the day three creation rock. And you beloved Santan Bible Church, uh, future river brothers and rats in the upcoming Grand Canyon tour we have in September, we'll see the evidence of that namely in the Grand Canyon, but I digress. The point here, beloved, is Noah believed these things which were not yet seen purely based on the word of God. God told Noah that a massive water deluge was coming to the earth. Uh, It's possible Noah had possibly never even seen rain before. In Genesis 2 verse 5, it said rain had not fallen on the land and a mist used to rise up to water The land. Uh, So it could be that he had never seen rain before. He certainly never saw the kind of rain and water deluge that was coming here. It's possible he'd never seen a boat. He certainly, most certainly had never seen the kind of massive seagoing vessel that God commanded him to build. In fact, the world certainly had never seen that kind of global destruction of the flood before and since by virtue of God's promise. And the world didn't see any kind of boat even remotely close to Noah's until some 4,500 years later in the 19th century when a boat was finally built to meet the magnitude of Noah. So the point is, Noah had to believe the word of God and he worked for 120 years based on something that from a world standpoint would seem totally ludicrous. Uh, The jeering and the mocking and the scorning of his contemporaries of building this massive vessel for 120 years On dry land is what sets the stage here. Beloved, in the context of this characteristic of Noah's saving faith, of the revelation of God, Noah believed that what God promises, God will produce. And it draws us back as a way of reminder to what the author of Hebrews said in verse 1 of chapter 11, that faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. So Noah demonstrated his faith based on things that he'd never seen. The world had never seen before. And beloved, what we should understand this is this was the case for Noah. This was the case for the Jewish believers that the author of Hebrews was writing. And this is the case for you and for me. With faith, faith doesn't begin here ultimately. It doesn't begin in the heart. Faith begins here faith begins in the book. That's the message of all of scripture beginning in Genesis and certainly captured here well in Hebrews. So the first characteristic of saving faith is revelation. The second characteristic of saving faith as we continue in verse 7 is reverence. You see, Noah had a working faith. Noah had a reverent fear. By faith, Noah being warned by God about things not yet seen now look at what the text says in reverence prepared an ark for the salvation of his household the word the Greek word translated reverence here is a rich word it's not the Greek word phobos from which we get phobia that is often translated as reverence or fear this is a different word Uh, This word was used earlier in Hebrews 5 verse 7 where it's translated as piety. Or in the Greek translation of the Hebrew Old Testament in, for example, Exodus 3, the word is translated for a Hebrew word meaning to be afraid. So fear is an element of this kind of reverence, but it's not as strong of an element as the other one. But also in Proverbs verse 30 where the author there says, God is a shield to those who take refuge in him. Take refuge is also translated with this Greek word. In Habakkuk 2, God says to Habakkuk, Let all the earth be silent before him. A reverent silence is also part of the richness of this word. Malachi chapter 3, esteem his name. Again, that Greek word is used there. So that was a kind of rich faith that Noah had, the reverent faith. Back in Genesis chapter 6, Noah demonstrated this reverent fear, this working faith, by being obedient to the precise specifications and instructions that God had given him. In verse 14, Hebrews 6, God commanded Noah, make for yourself an ark of gopher wood. You shall make the ark with rooms and shall cover it inside and out with pitch. And this is how you shall make it, the length of the ark, 300 cubits, its breadth 50 cubits, and its height 30 cubits. You shall make a window for the ark and finish it to a cubit from the top and set the door of the ark in the side of it. You shall make it with lower, second, and third decks. So God gave very specific instructions to Noah, and Noah demonstrated his faith by adhering and obeying precisely what God had said. And by the way, beloved, what's amazing, just a side note here, uh, Noah covered the ark with pitch. You see that at the end of verse 14. In the Hebrew language, the same three Hebrew uh, consonants that are translated as pitch are the same Hebrew consonants that are translated as atonement. So in the same way, in the beauty of the language, of the Hebrew language, in the same way that the ark was covered with pitch, and the ark and Noah and the other seven souls in the ark were protected from the fury of God's judgment of water by that pitch, so also the believer in Christ is atoned for and covered completely with the blood of Christ and protected from God's future judgment. And then in verse 18, uh, we see these words, where we see the first biblical covenant that God gives, and he does it with Noah. Verse 18, Genesis 6, God says, I will establish my covenant with you, and you shall enter the ark, you and your sons and your wife and your sons' wives with you. This is the phrase, this is a source of the phrase that the author of Hebrews brings out for the salvation of his household. And then finally from Genesis 6 and one verse from Genesis 7, when we think of this reverent obedience that demonstrates Noah's true saving faith, in Genesis 6, verse 22, you'll read the words, Thus Noah did according to all that God commanded him, all that Elohim commanded him. And then in Genesis 7, verse 5, you'll read the words, Thus Noah did according to all that the Lord, all that Yahweh had commanded him. So, Noah was obedient. Noah wasn't saved because he was obedient. Noah was obedient because he was saved, because he had faith. And while we are being blessed by some of these side gems and riches from the text, the reason why you see the difference between Noah obeyed all that God Elohim commanded in Genesis 6 and Noah obeyed all that Yahweh, the Lord commanded in Genesis 7, Genesis 6, 22 comes right after Noah received all the animals in pairs. All of the animals, the twos that came to him for the preservation of God's creation, of Elohim's creation. But in Genesis 7, he received seven pairs of the clean animals, which were for sacrifice. And so that is why Uh, Moses, when he wrote Genesis, said thus Noah did according to all that Yahweh, the covenant name of God, commanded him in the context of sacrifice. So, beloved, Noah did all that God commanded him to specifically and precisely. He collected the food. He collected the other necessities. When God providentially, in an extraordinary providential way, brought all the animals to Noah, Noah opened the door and received them in and we can even say and even understand this that again when we look at what the author of hebrews the way he opens up chapter 11 with his definition of faith that it is the convictions the convincing evidence of things not seen noah's building that ark for 120 years is the convincing evidence the proof of his faith and in the context of abel and enoch we understand that Abel paid the price of his life for his faith. Enoch was taken from this life by his faith. And Noah saved his own life and the lives of his household by his faith. And We can ask ourselves uh, from a theological construct or thinking about Noah, but more importantly, we can ask in the context of our own life, what is more important, Noah's faith or Noah's reverence? What's more important for you, your faith or your reverence? Well, to answer that, let me ask a question. If you're flying on an airplane 35,000 feet above the ground, which is more important, the left wing or the right wing? And you get the point. It's a both and. Both are necessary. Both are necessary for the flight. Both faith and reverence are necessary elements of the kind of saving faith that is described from Genesis all the way to the book of Revelation. Also this, understand, kind of to take the application to a different level or a different direction. Understand this. This is also there. Both very essentially important for your ministry of evangelism for you being used by God to reach unsaved men and women and understand this beloved the those around you your neighbors your co-workers your family members who might not be saved they're not just listening to what you say they're watching how you respond they're watching how I respond to what God has already said to us and our Obedience to the revealed word of God is one of the most decisive, important factors in seeing unbelieving men and women become committed followers of Jesus Christ. We need both. Here's the extended application. In your flight of evangelism, in your flight of the ministry of bringing the gospel to people, it requires both the proclamation. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. And it requires an authentic witness, not a perfect witness on this side of eternity, but an authentic witness. And I like what the Puritan Thomas Manton had to say. He said this, quote, If we had more weighty thoughts about the worth and danger of souls, we wouldn't do the Lord's work so sleepily. Beloved, dear friend, when God says it, that settles it. And we can think as parents, as we seek to shepherd our children when they're young and we give them instruction, do this or don't do this. And very often we'll be met with the resounding question, why? And sometimes the answer, and you have to give this answer sometime, because I said so. Your child needs to understand that if you say it, that settles it. There may be other times where you may give further justification as you shepherd them. And perhaps you say, don't do this, and you might hear the response, well, everyone else does it. One answer is, Good, all the more reason for you not to do it. We're not like everyone else. You aren't being raised like everyone else. More importantly, God doesn't want you to be like everyone else. We don't think like everyone else thinks. We don't speak like everyone else speaks. We don't do like everybody else does. By God's grace and mercy, we're not patting ourselves on the back. We're seeking to be humbly obedient to the revealed Word of God. So, Revelation, reverence. The third characteristic of saving faith is rebuke. Alcibiades was a prominent statesman, orator, and general in Athens. It's reported, it's said, that he was a student at some level or had some kind of interaction with Socrates. And it was reported that Alcibiades said to Socrates, I hate you because every time I meet you, you show me what I am. end quote beloved that's a illustration of the reality that goodness is inherently danger there's a danger in goodness because in the light of good evil stands condemned and so faith faces opposition Enoch's faith faced opposition Abel's faith faced opposition to the point that his brother murdered him So look at what we see here as we continue verse 7. By faith, Noah being warned by God about things not yet seen in reverence, prepared an ark for the salvation of his household. And look at the text. By which he condemned the world. By which, the pronoun which, feminine singular, it could refer to salvation, Ark or faith, all of those nouns are singular feminine. We have our Greek professor back here. He can keep us honest in all this. So it wa- it was, was, was the world condemned by Noah's salvation or by the ark he built or by faith? And I would say this is another one where you can take your pick. It could be any of them. Uh, The law of antecedent would say salvation, but beloved, the whole point here is there are two kinds of people in the world, those who will be judged by God and those who are rescued by God. You are, friend, you are either delivered or you're damned by God. There are no other options. Back in Genesis 6, uh, we've already read of the corruption at the time, but if we pick up in verse 9 of chapter 6, We'll get another element of the contrast, the powerful contrast between Noah and the wicked world of his time. Verse 9, Genesis 6 These are the records of the generations of Noah. Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his time. Noah walked with God, and Noah became the father of three sons Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Now the earth was corrupt in the sight of God, and the earth was filled with violence. And God looked on the earth, and behold, it was corrupt, for all flesh had corrupted their way upon the earth. Then God said to Noah, The end of all flesh has come before me, for the earth is filled with violence because of them. And behold, I'm about to destroy them with the earth. So that is the strong contrast. Verse 17, Behold, I, even I, God says, am bringing the flood of the water upon the earth to destroy all flesh in which is the breath of Of life from under heaven everything that is on the earth shall perish Uh, even more verses that bring out this extensive and continual and every all aspect of the total global destruction but the contrast is with Noah Noah we just read was a righteous man he was blameless in his time he walked with God like Enoch before him did Beloved, the point here is in the context of the rebuke of his saving faith is Noah was a bright light cast against a dark background. You can think of a room that is a dark room, and you bring a light into the dark room, and there's a huge contrast between the light and the darkness. Uh, The light makes what was previously hidden revealed for what it truly is. And in the same way, when an obedient man or an obedient woman comes upon the scene, his or her life condemns the disobedient, is what God says to the author of Hebrews verse 11. And this was by virtue of the 120 years of work ministry, of working ministry, Noah and his sons. And I would imagine at some level with the help of their wives in building the ark, And also, we can have another exposition from a New Testament author with the Apostle Peter in 2 Peter 2, verse 5. Peter says this, God did not spare the ancient world, but, watch this, preserved Noah, a preacher of righteousness, with seven others when he brought a flood upon the world of the ungodly. So, beloved, Noah built the ark. Noah preached for 120 years. And what's amazing, I mean, I I try to, you know, stumble through what I do up here, and I'm I'm blessed that God would use, you know, not many mighty, not many noble would use the frailty of this mere man with the mighty message of the word of God. Noah, I'm sure, was (laughs) magnitudes of order better preacher than I am. However, in the economy of God, he preached for 120 years, and no one believed. No one listened with ears to hear. Just his wife his three sons and his son's wives. The jeers, the taunts, scorn was the daily diet of the opposition he had for 120 years. Beloved, in one sense, I, sorry, you know, I love my beloved Santan Bible Church. It is so easy to be a Christian in Santan Bible Church. It is very easy to bend, and this is good, this is a positive aspect, it it, it is easy to bend the knee to the revealed will of God, even the warning of God in Scripture, surrounded by like-minded, godly men and women that give great examples of being obedient to the faith. The challenge, the difficulty, the real test is when you have no one to lean on except for God that's what Noah and his wife and the sons and their three wives face that was the true test of faith that's why the ark this incredibly large some 450 plus feet in length uh, 75 feet 60 huge massive structure was a visible evidence of his faith of his revelatory re- revelation based faith his reverent faith his rebuking faith to the unbelieving and scoffing world and the situation was the contemporaries of Noah rejected the divine warning by their unbelief. I can imagine they were saying, who is, who is this psycho? Who is this madman? Who does this guy think he is? Where does he get this stuff? <clears throat> perhaps Noah, as part of his preaching, when he got towards the end, when he built the ark and there was a door, perhaps there was even an appeal. He said, all you have to do to be saved from the Fury of the wrath that is to come is just come through the door. And as Alistair Begg says, they probably responded, we're not going in that stink hole of an ark. I tried the Scottish accent, but NCD, no can do. Beloved, dear friend, Noah believed. Noah revered and Noah obeyed. All his contemporaries disbelieved. They mocked, and they disobeyed, and so they were condemned. And understand this, dear friend, there are only two doors. There's Noah's door, and there's the other door. What door are you going through here this morning? That is the challenge. It's the same challenge now as it was then. And we understand that, uh, we understand that We want sin judged. I mean, the standard reality for children, for adults, for grown children who are called adults, is we generally have a tendency to want justice for everybody else and mercy for us. But we understand that divine judgment doesn't always come right away. We understand that there are rapists who escape detection. There are murderers who go free and build up Swiss accounts they are corrupt politicians who lie and live lives of luxury. There's evil everywhere, and bolts of lightning aren't striking down. But understand this. His day is coming. In fact, in Hebrews, back in chapter 10, verse 25, do you remember what the author said by way of exhortation to the church? Don't be forsaking our own assembling together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. And beloved, understand this. The hope of his future coming, the hope of his coming, and our final redemption, our final glorification is a great source of joy and anticipation. But also, even his coming in judgment is also a ray of hope because the hope of his coming and judgment is the guarantee that we don't have to live in this eternally sinful and vile universe forever. That we don't have to live in the eternally we don't have to eternally live in as Jeremiah says this present ministry because God is righteous and he is coming. Spurgeon the prince of preachers gave this by way of exhortation he said quote I charge you who profess the Lord not to be unbelieving with regard to the terrible threatenings of God toward the ungodly. Believe the threat, even though it should chill your blood. Believe though nature shrinks from the overwhelming doom, End quote. And beloved, understand this. If You and I, if we don't warn the sinner against this coming wrath, we are not being his or her friend. We are acting as though we are their mortal enemy. That is the full counsel of God. Revelation, reverence, rebuke. The fourth and final characteristic of Noah's saving faith is reward. And we've seen this already many times in Hebrews. This was a common topic that the Apostle Paul had in his heart when he wrote to the church in Ephesus. Noah exemplifies the theological assertion that we saw at the end of verse 6. At the end of verse 5, we were told by the author of Hebrews that Enoch was pleasing to God. And then in verse 6, the author says, Without faith it is impossible to please him, for he who comes to God must believe that he is, and what? And that he is a rewarder of those who seek him. Well, okay, has anyone received that reward? All we have to do is read one verse later. Noah received that reward. What motivated Noah's building of the ark was his belief. He believed the word of God. So Noah's work flowed from the fountain of faith. That's why at the end of verse 7, the author says, and he became an heir of the righteousness which is according to faith. So he wraps up with faith. That is the central theme here. But he became an heir of the righteousness, the reward of the righteousness. Uh, the author already talks about, talked about this inheritance. Back in chapter 6, verse 17, the author described all of us as heirs of the promise. Or We may remember the charge the author gave also back in chapter six, verse 11, where he commands the original audience and God commands you and me, be imitators, mimic, imitate those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. And Noah is a stellar example of one whom you and I can imitate. And then even to go to a deeper level or a higher level, or both a deeper and a higher level, Back in chapter 1, the author opened up this incredible letter with this wonderful treatise on the sun, on the infinite grandeur of the sun, one of which magnificent descriptions of the sun was that he is the heir, the inheritor of all things. And the point is this. Since Christ is the heir of all things, no inheritance remains. He's inherited everything. No, there's no inheritance for anyone else unless... You are united with Christ unless you are in Christ. And beloved, that is God's promise to you and me and that is precisely what was demonstrated by Noah. Notice he says, became an heir of the righteousness which is according to faith. This is justification by faith alone. This is being counted righteous before a holy God with a righteousness that doesn't belong to ourselves. And in fact, we saw this back in Genesis chapter 6. Just when, after we read the sordid story of Abel, and then we understand the wickedness of the world that's captured in verses 1 through 8 of Genesis chapter 6, we have this beautiful three letter word that begins verse 8 but. This is a gospel, but. The world is saturated with total corruption and depravity, verse uh, 8 of Genesis 6. But. Noah found favor. Literally, Noah found grace, same word. Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. He found grace in the eyes of Yahweh. This is the first appearance of the word grace in scripture. God's grace has been implicit and understood with everything that's taken place, even from the fall, even with his words of hope and promise to Adam and Eve that I mentioned before back in Genesis chapter three. Abel and Seth. Men calling upon the name of Yahweh at the end of Genesis 4 in the days of Seth. The image of God continuing on from Adam to Seth and onwards all the way up to Noah in Genesis chapter 5 comes from God's grace. The undeserved favor that God bestows upon his children. Enoch escaping death was a powerful picture of God's grace even genesis 5 which culminates with the birth of noah and noah is named noah because god will give rest to his people even a precursor to the sabbath rest the eternal sabbath rest we will enjoy in christ all of these are presupposed and based upon god's grace but noah is the first one who we are explicitly told found grace in the eyes of God and then in verse 9 he was righteous so grace was the first appearance there and then verse 9 the first appearance of righteousness the great gospel terms Noah was a righteous man blameless in his time Genesis 7 verse 1 God says when he speaks again to Noah you alone I have found to be righteous before me in this time Beloved, what this means in this reward of righteousness, what it practically means in the life of Noah, what it practically means in the life of you and me is Noah stood his ground in purity in the midst of immorality. He was characterized by obedience in the midst of ridicule, patience in the midst of uncertainty, 120-year-long patience, worship in the midst of difficulty. Noah like Enoch, like Abel, is a living example of what the author of Hebrews said back in chapter 10, verse 38, when he quoted from Habakkuk 2.4, where God says, but my righteous man, my righteous woman, shall live by faith. This is what living by faith looks like. And a result of that, beloved, is Noah was safe in the ark from the watery judgment. And I've said this before, I'll say it again. We need to understand this. Noah, he was safe from God's judgment in the ark. But Noah wasn't safe because he was in the ark, ultimately. He was in the ark because he was safe in the Lord. That is the message. That's what it means for Noah to have found grace and favor in the eyes of God. James Boyce The late Dr. Boyce had a great statement in the context of the period of God's patience, which is what we saw 120 years in the case of Noah. This is what Dr. Boyce said. He said, grace is great, but it's not unending. If it's spurned, the day of reckoning eventually comes. For one final week, the door stood open in the case of Noah. But the week ended and the door was closed and the flood came. The same God who opens the doors is himself the door. He also closes doors and refuses to open them when the time for grace is gone. And, beloved, this period of grace and opportunity for repentance is even what our Lord Jesus Christ talked about in the Olivet Discourse. In Matthew 24, Jesus likened and brought out the global destruction of the flood at the time of Noah. And this is what Jesus taught, Matthew 24, verses 38 and 39. As in those days, which were before the flood, they were eating and drinking. They were marrying and giving in marriage until the day that Noah entered the ark. And they did not understand until the flood came and took them all away. What he's saying is life was routine and they were just going about their routine until it's too late. They didn't realize until the flood came and washed them all away the into a godless eternity. But then Jesus, in the same way, draws the application from that illustration. And Jesus continued and says, so shall the coming of the Son of Man be. What he's saying, dear friend, there is every single human being will face the full fury and wrath of God. Every person will go through the same storm of his judgment if you die outside of Christ, if you die in your sin, if you die, if you pass into eternity without having your sin paid for by the once-for-all sacrifice of Jesus Christ at the cross. There are only two possibilities then. You're either in the ark and protected from judgment or outside of the ark and swept away by the judgment. So also there are only two options now. You're either in Christ and protected from God's righteous judgment or you're outside of Christ and will be swept away by God's coming judgment. Those who won't have God as Savior will have him as judge. I'm going to close with an extended quote. I read this some eight years ago, and we have uh, one or two uh, people new to the church uh, in that time. It's uh, from something called the Fellowship of the Unashamed. Uh, The authorship is unknown, but these are some of the words, and I kind of modified this a little bit. This is what the Fellowship of the unashamed, Unashamed is all about. This is a great encapsulation and motivator for us to leave here from the life of Noah. This is the quote. I'm a part of the fellowship of the unashamed. I have the power of the Holy Spirit. The die's been cast. I've stepped over the line. The decision's been made. I am a disciple of Jesus. I won't look back, let up, slow down, back away, or be still. My past is redeemed. My present makes sense. My future's secure. I am finished and done with low living, sight walking, small planning, smooth knees, colorless dreams, tamed visions, cheap living, and dwarfed goals. I don't need preeminence, prosperity, position, promotions, or popularity. I don't have to be right, first, tops, recognized, praised, regarded, or rewarded. I live by faith, lean on his presence, walk by patient. Lift by prayer and labor by power. My face is set. My gate is fast. My goal is heaven. My roads narrow, my my way rough, my companions few, my guide reliable, and my mission clear. I won't be bought, compromised, deterred, deluded, or delayed. I won't be lured away or turned back. I will not flinch in the face of sacrifice, hesitate before the adversary, negotiate at the table of the enemy, ponder at the pool of popularity, or meander in the maze of mediocrity. I won't give up, shut up, or let up until I've stayed up, stored up, prayed up, paid up, and preached up for the cause of Christ. I have the great hope of his coming. So I preach until all know and work until all stops. And when he comes, he won't have any trouble recognizing me, for my banner is clear. Please join me, beloved, as we go to the Lord in prayer. Lord God, we praise you and thank you, Lord. We thank you, Lord, for your grace. Thank you for the righteousness, Lord Jesus, that you accomplish your sinless Perfect life of obedience. Thank you for the gift of salvation. Thank you for the gift of righteousness, Lord Jesus, so that when God, our Holy Father, when you, our Holy Father, look at us, when you look at me, you don't see my sinful life. You see the perfect, sinless life of Christ. Thank you that this righteousness that you credit to our account changes us for the indwelling power of the Holy Spirit by which we can live righteous lives for your glory. Lord God, help us to love you more and more. Help us to love one another more and more. Help us to be faithful and love our neighbor, our coworkers, our family members. It is for your glory and honor, Lord Jesus, that we pray, that we desire to live, and that we lift up these songs of great joy, the song of the redeemed. And it's in your name and for your glory that we pray. Amen.